All right, so we're starting a new series tonight, and then you guys get to go on break, and then we get to come back, and um, when the weather's nicer, we're going to be talking about this dreary book, Ecclesiastes. No, it's actually, Ecclesiastes is really one of my favorite books, because it's a book that's very realistic, and I think a criticism that is often, and I think often fairly lobbed at Christians, is that they are kind of trying to sort of live in this little kind of fantasy world where everything is fine and try and pretend that that's the case. And Ecclesiastes is a wake-up call to anybody that would think that if you're a Christian, everything is rosy and everything just works so well. Um, when we speak that way in the church sometimes, or when we sing songs that give that impression, um, we make it harder for people who are actually struggling, which is to say we make it harder for everybody. Um, whether they're inside the faith community that, they, that we call Christianity or whether they're outside trying to figure out what is Christian about, what does it mean to be a Christian, what are Christians like, what is the experience of Christians and their relationship with God, it's important that we be honest about it. And Ecclesiastes is a book that's honest and it's good. But it's a book that's often been difficult for people to know how to interpret because there are things in this book that you just read it and you kind of scratch your head trying to figure out what is going on. I like this uh, quote from um, Archbishop Tutu. He said, God, we know you're in control, but can't you make it a little more obvious? <laughs> and maybe you've, uh, maybe you've felt that. Maybe like some of you can kind of lightheartedly, yeah, that's clever. But for others, it like strikes a deep chord. And um, it's not something to laugh about. Um, I was thinking about this, this book and about this basic theme that even when life works as well as it can, it still leaves us longing for so much more. And I was thinking about a really tragic circumstance that I had actually back in, it was around 1995, 96. It was right after I'd gotten out of seminary and um, was working at a church down in Franklin, was also doing REF up here, and one of the other pastors at the church was murdered by his son-in-law, estranged from his daughter, and it was brutal. And I remember they had two students, you know, they had a couple kids who were college students who I had met, and so I had to go to the airport and meet them when they flew home after hearing what had happened to their dad. And I, it, it, was a, it was a horrible thing, but I, I remember particularly sitting through the murder trial, you know? And I, I remember going through all that, hearing all the testimony, and I remember, you know, everybody that was there that heard the evidence presented and all that, it was obvious that the guy did it. It was premeditated. It was a really clear case. And the verdict that you wanted guilty is the verdict that they got. But I'll never forget, sitting in that courtroom when they read the verdict, there was no applause. There was just weeping. Because even though that was the right thing, even though that was justice, it still wasn't enough. It still wasn't enough. And that's what Ecclesiastes is about, is that this world is broken and even when things go well, even with God in your life, it's still broken and frustrating. I want us to read the intro to this book, 
And then we're going to read the, actually the ending of the book. If you want to know what a book's about, I don't know, maybe you've done this, especially if you don't have time to read the whole book. You know, can't imagine that a college student would ever be in that situation. Um, you know, you're going to read what? You're going to read the beginning, you're going to read the ending, and you're going to try and kind of skim through the middle and see if there's any like key themes that kind of jump out at you. That's actually a pretty good strategy. And that's kind of what we're going to do. Though tonight we only have time to do the intro, what we might call the prologue, and the epilogue, the end of the book. And then when you get back from break, we're going to look at this key theme, which is a really interesting theme. I'll mention it tonight, but we won't get into it at all. We'll wait until after break for that. But the introduction and then the outro. So the introduction, we started Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. Now I am actually have here the NIV translation, which is the one I kind of grew up on. The uh, ESV translation, which I know a lot of you use, instead of saying meaningless, meaningless, it says vanity, vanity. Okay, that's the old King James word that's used as well. And I'm going to talk a lot about what that word means, because the translation of that word is really important to understanding this book. But um, we're going to read the NIV uh, tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, start at verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. Some of them Oh, sorry, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And then we're going to jump to chapter 12. This is the conclusion of the book. This is how it ends. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end and this is one of the best verses ever for college students, and much study wearies the body. 
Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed unto judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this perplexing, often challenging book. Um, Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you that the words of the wise are like goads, that they are designed to prick us, rouse us from our complacency and our slumber, even to get in touch with the ache and the frustration that we feel and yet often try to ignore. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that brings comfort to the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. And wherever we are tonight, may your word do its work through the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, I just seem to think that Christians have a tough time being honest about the mess that sin has really made of the world. And, and I think sometimes people feel like, well, I know sin's made a mess of the world, but once I became a Christian, once I know Jesus, then everything's better. And you see that in the kinds of testimonies that you see often at churches. Rarely do you get testimonies of people whose life is still difficult, still frustrating. And so there's like this subtext that comes across all the time. It's in the music that you hear on Christian radio. It's in all the little Christian movies that maybe you go see. I don't usually go see them. Um, but it's, it's just this subtext that if you know Jesus, everything works out. And um, Ecclesiastes comes and basically like pops a hole in that, in that balloon and says, hold on. Is that really true? Now, some people, they, they find a book like Ecclesiastes and they're like, because it doesn't fit the paradigm of what they think Christian life should feel like, they try to explain it away. And this has actually been going on a long time. Even before Jesus came, we know that the Jews struggled with how to interpret this book. And there's lots of different things. They did um, versions of this book where they added in lots of little explaining comments at the bottom that kind of like explain away what the text actually says. I mean, how can the Bible, Jews and Christians have all sort of struggled with this, how can the Bible say everything is meaningless? That just seems like a strange thing to say. Don't we like invite people to, to believe in Jesus and believe in Christianity because it'll give meaning and purpose to their life? And then you go start reading the Bible and you come across this book that says everything is meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And if that's not bad enough, when you get to chapter 9, verse 7, it says this, Go, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. So eat, drink, and be merry. Life is meaningless. And then chapter 9, eat, drink, and be merry. What are you to do with this? Well, as you might expect, people have tried to wrestle with what can this book be about? How might we understand it and have it fit in with what the rest of the Bible seems to say about faith? So some have argued that it's written from the perspective of somebody trying to make life work apart from God. And, and there are different ways that this works. Some would say it's written by Solomon, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. It's written when he was in a backslidden condition. Because we do know 
from the, you know, the rest of the Old Testament and the stories that there was a point at which he kind of really turned away from the Lord and married all these foreign wives and got tied up in stuff that he shouldn't have been messing with. Okay? So maybe this is Solomon writing in a backslidden condition, or maybe it's him after he's backslidden and then recovered writing, or maybe it's even him taking on the role of somebody who's trying to live without God and then writing about it in sort of an evangelistic way. Like, you don't want to live like this. Don't live like this, because it doesn't really work. So maybe that's why it seems so dreary. Some have argued that there are multiple authors, that there was one original author who's this skeptic and cynic, and then you have like these other statements that get inserted to try to kind of clean up the theology and make it not such a dreary, dismal book. And others see this phrase as under the sun, as referring to life without God trying to live life without God. Now, I don't think any of those things work, actually. And and the reason that none of those perspectives work is it doesn't fit with the end of the book. It's important to read not just the beginning, but the ending of the book, right? The ending of the book makes it impossible that this is the uh, reasonings of a skeptic or a person without God. The person who wrote this book, the teacher, it says, is not a skeptic whose words need to be edited or balanced. The skeptic, or sorry, the teacher, in the Hebrew that's the word koheleth. So some people refer to koheleth rather than saying the teacher. So the teacher is spoken of as a wise man. The teacher searched to find just the right words, verse 10, and what he wrote was what? Upright and true. He's spoken of as a wise man whose words are upright and true. That means it can't be multiple authors unless the whole book is a fraud. That means it's not the reasonings of a skeptic. All the words are upright and true. Nor is he taking on the role of a man reasoning apart from God. They're upright and they're true words. They're not bad words that you should learn from this negative example that, you know, you don't want to try and live apart from God because then you'll think like this crazy guy who wrote Ecclesiastes. No, the words of this book are upright and true. And furthermore, there are many places, as we get into this, I'll show you next week or uh, two weeks from now, where under the sun cannot mean life apart from God. And we're going to talk about what under the sun means as we talk about this. But let me just say one other thing. A lot of the, the times that we, a lot of what happens when we read this book is we project later philosophical ideas onto this book. Like Epicurean, Epic, Epicureanism, yes, Epicureanism or existentialism, right? Everything's meaningless. So, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Those are all later. This is actually one of, one of the older books, you know, and it, and it predates all of those philosophical views. So what are we to think of this book? What's it really about? Well, let's look at the intro first. Meaningless, meaningless, or some translations say vanity, vanity. The Hebrew word behind that is the word hevel. Hevel, hevel. And meaningless doesn't really capture the sense of what Havel is about. If you read through this entire book, 
just looking for everywhere where it uses this word havel, meaningless, meaningless, or vanity, vanity, if you kind of go through it all, you're going to see two ideas that keep emerging around this idea of havel. One, life is frustrating, and two, life makes no sense. Now, you see the life is frustrating right away, and it's, and it's this idea, life is frustrating under the sun, but as I said, under the sun, it's too easy to just say, well, life is frustrating for people that try to live apart from God. And so under the sun must mean apart from God. But look, Ecclesiastes 8.15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Under the sun are the days that God has given him. God is not distant or absent from the days under the sun. Actually, what under the sun is referring to is life after the fall. Actually, Ecclesiastes is a reflection on Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. And let me show you a few of the connections to make, make this clear. Do you remember what happens to Adam and Eve? They get cursed after the fall. And, and when you look at the curses, what ends up happening is that things that should work don't work like they should anymore. The woman is cursed to frustration as a mother in childbirth with extra pain, but also with the pain of bringing little sinners into a dark, dangerous world. And what's fascinating is Abel, the name of her second child, is Havel. She names her second child frustrating. That's pretty interesting. And it's not because she knew him, and he was frustrating. No, it's because, well, actually, it's fascinating how the story works. The first, you know, God says, even though childbirth is going to be frustrated, even though the man's work is going to be frustrated, cursed, their promise that's given to Adam and Eve is that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And when she has her first baby, do you know what she says? In the most translations, it say, says, look, the Lord has given me a man. It's a boy. That's what you think she's saying. It's actually not what she says. What she says is, the Lord has given me the man. The definite article is there in the Hebrew. And what it seems that she's saying is, ah, this is the one. The one who will crush the head of the serpent, just as was promised. Lo, look, behold. The Lord has done it. He has fulfilled the promise. Everything's going to be better now. That isn't what happens. And by the time she has another baby, she names him Havel. Because the, the reality is set in that the curse is here to stay. She's also cursed to frustration as a wife. No longer will she be a helper, which is a position of dignity. It's a word usually used of God himself. He is Israel's helper. But no longer will she be a helper. Now her desire 
will be, and here there's actually a double entendre in the Hebrew, her desire will be either, or probably both, a desire to rule over her husband, or her desire for her husband will rule over her. So she'll either want to dominate or be dominated. And you see that push-pull in relationships between men and women to this day. There's also the frustration and the curse on the man in his work. He's going to till the ground, but the ground is going to win because he will return to the dust. And while he will till the ground and work, thorns are going to go right alongside with the fruit that's going to come from his labor. So frustration is everywhere there in Genesis. Sin brings frustration. It doesn't just bring death and guilt. It brings frustration. Everything is broken, as Bob Dylan said. And then, here's the clincher. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, is actually quoting the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes when Romans 8.20, when he says that the, the creation has been subjected to frustration. Now, who subjected the creation to frustration? It wasn't Adam and Eve. It was God. God subjects the creation to frustration, and the creation even now is groaning. Just as we're groaning, the creation is groaning because it can't be all that it was meant to be. And that leads us to this next point about what Hevel means. And, and this, you go back to the text in chapter 1. Here, here's the, 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 you know, here's, here's what, what chapter 1 is saying. Life is Hevel because nothing ever reaches its goal. Everything is frustrating. What does man gain from his labor at which he toils? Verse 3. Generations come, generations go. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes. But it never reaches a conclusion. You see it even more clearly when it talks in verse 7. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. It just goes on and on and on. Things never reach their goal. Never reaches a sense of which, ah, finally, everything is how it should be. It goes on. All things are wearisome, verse 8. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Nothing reaches its conclusion. Nothing reaches its goal. The eye was made to see, but even in seeing, doing the work that it was created to do, it's never satisfied. And then there's another idea of Hevel as they go through this book. It's this, that life is frustrating because it often makes no sense to us. Now I'll just jump ahead and read a verse from chapter 3, verse 11 that brings this out clearly. There's other places where this idea seems to be attached to Hevel as well. God has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What Ecclesiastes 3.11 is saying is God has put in your heart a longing, a yearning to understand, and then he's frustrated your ability to make sense of the world. Even as Christians, we can understand the big picture that all things work for our good. Romans 8.28, that everything happens according to God's plan. That's Ephesians 1.11. And yet we still can't figure out how all the things that happen under the sun make sense. Just because you know the big picture doesn't mean that life makes sense in the everyday 
a guy named J. Stafford Wright wrote a brilliant essay on the interpretation of Ecclesiastes, puts it this way, he says, life has lost the key to itself. I put this quote, I think, at the bottom of your page. I won't read all of it, but this is, this is helpful, I think. All life, he says, is vanity in this sense that it's unable to give us the key to itself. Ecclesiastes is the record, I guess it's on the, the bottom of your scripture page. It's the bottom of your scripture page. Ecclesiastes is the record of a search for the key to life. It's an endeavor to give a meaning to life, to see it as a whole, and there is no key under the sun. Life has lost the key to itself. If you want the key, you must go to the locksmith who made the lock. God holds the key of all unknown, and he will not give it to you. Since then you cannot get the key, you must trust the locksmith to open the doors. That eternal why hangs over our lives. It meets us at every turn. Our fondest hopes are shattered. Why? The Nazi horde overruns Europe. Why? 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 Where is the sense in it all? And yet we must go on looking for the sense. It's incredible, he'd say astonishing, that life should make no sense. We can't believe it makes no sense. Every man who thinks at all believes that there is some sense somewhere if he could only find it. He may not look very far. He may settle down to an unworthy philosophy of life. Or he may plumb the depths of reason, of science, or of theology and endeavor to find the plan, but he cannot find it. No one has. The moment we think we have it, something happens that does not fit into the scheme at all. But we go on looking. We must look. We cannot help it. It is a sore travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. That's the King James. He hath set eternity in their heart, yet so that man cannot find out the work that God hath done from the beginning down to the end. What is the driving force that compels our minds to turn again and again to the problem of life? Is it no more than idle curiosity? Or is it part of our inheritance as those made in the image of God? So that, what we, so that we see that the universe has a wholeness and that it must make sense if only we could find what that sense is. The Christian answer is that the universe does make sense. There is a plan and a purpose that has its center and climax in Christ, but not even to Christians has it been given to comprehend the plan. Not even a Christian can explain how everything that comes into his life takes its place in the plan. <coughs> this is a book about wisdom. How do you live in light of that? How do you live in light of that? Well, <laughs> I'll tell you what we tend to do is we tend to look to various schemes to try to avoid or rise above the frustration. We don't like the frustration. So we throw ourselves into things hoping that we can avoid it. All kinds of schemes. It's in Ecclesiastes 7.29 that it says this, this only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. And you see back in chapter 1 verse 15, that last verse that I read from the beginning, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted, but we keep trying to find something to make life work and to live without the frustration. And we'll talk about this as we go through the work, the, the, the book, the pursuit of pleasure and things to distract us from the frustration. That's one of the schemes. Some people, it's the pursuit of knowledge, even theological knowledge, as a way to control our world and not live with any kind of frustration. Even cynicism can be a way to not live with ache and longing. 
just close your heart. The pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of art and beauty, the pursuit of power, even the pursuit of folly, the book talks about. There was a book years ago um, called, uh, uh, um, called Shows About Nothing, about nihilistic humor, like Seinfeld. You guys like Seinfeld? No? You ever watched it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a show where, you know, all these, like every episode is about some random thing that happens that messes up, you know, somebody's good plants. And everybody's all in a tizzy, except Seinfeld, the comedian. He doesn't take anything seriously, and he emerges unscathed most every time. Subtext, the best way to live in a meaningless, frustrating world is just don't let it get you down. Right? It's a scheme. It's a scheme. He also can't ever really find love, but that's part of it, isn't it? It's true. It's true. If you follow the, the, if you follow the story, maybe you guys haven't seen the, the, uh, the, the whole epi- all the episodes. I'm not talking about him personally. I'm talking about the show. But, well, but now here's what's fascinating. So you've got this, this pretty dismal kind of sounding thing. I would say it's reality. It's reality. But there's this theme that goes all through the book, and this is what we'll talk about when we come back from break. We can and must find joy even in the midst of the frustration. That's one of the interesting things about this book. I commend joy. This is a theme that goes all through the book, and it gets more intense as the book goes on. So we're going to talk about that. But let's jump to the end, the conclusion. The conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep his command. So remember, this is a book that in the Hebrew Bible is considered one of the wisdom books. The wisdom books help us not not misunderstand the law. Now, what I mean by that is this. If you read the law, the Old Testament, you may get the impression, like all of Job's friends, that if you do the right thing, life will work. The wisdom literature serves to nuance that and say it's actually more complicated than that. Sometimes you do the right things and the brokenness of the world messes everything up. How then shall we live in light of that? So Ecclesiastes is about how then shall we live? And so it looks at all these different ways. You don't want to go in search of all these schemes. None of them work. None of them work. And so then you get to the end of the book and what does it say? What is the conclusion of the matter? What shall we say? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And what does it say? Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, some of you, that may rub you the wrong way, because you don't like to think that the purpose of life involves particular duty, a particular way to live. Some people would much rather like believe that the purpose of life is just to keep searching for the purpose of life. (laughs) Because of course, if God tells you what the purpose of life is, it may mean that you actually need to adjust what you're doing to fit the actual purpose, right? I I don't think we should be naive and say just because people seem to want to search for the meaning of life that they actually really care to find it. As a matter of fact, actually C.S. Lewis in his great um, book, The Great Divorce, anybody ever read that book, The Great Divorce? Um, it's, a, it's a, you know, a, a kind of a parable of sorts of these, you know, ghosts that are kind of having the opportunity to either go from kind of this hell kind of place to heaven, and there's this bus that keeps coming, 
And everybody has these excuses for why they don't want to get on the bus and go from this kind of hellish kind of place up to heaven. And there's one where there's like this, uh, this guy who basically is like, oh, you know, I could find the meaning of life if I get on the bus and go there. Well, you know, how do, how do we really know what the meaning of life is? Um, you know, there's lots of different ideas that people have, lots of different perspectives. Sounds like some of the things I heard at a convo the other day. And then, it's true, it's true. You know what, what um, do you know what, do you know what the, what the, what the ghost says? Well, here's what C.S. Lewis says. The ghost, basically, the b- ghost basically doesn't get on the bus, and it says he runs off to join his discussion group in hell. This is a, tr- this is a real deal sometimes. And sometimes education can be about that, right? Just like continually, let's just try some new and novel ideas. But what happens if God says, this is the meaning of life? This is the purpose of life. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. It's actually gracious of God to tell us what the purpose of life is. Because there's a lot of people who are groping in the dark. It's the whole duty of man. It was the purpose of man before the fall, and it remains our purpose today. Now, a life of fearing God and keeping his commands, it doesn't mean be afraid of God. Psalm 130, it says this, because with you there is forgiveness of sins, therefore I will fear you. So fear in God cannot be being afraid of God, but it means reverencing in God, it means connecting the dots in every way. God wants so much more than just obeying lip service or grudging obedience. He wants this attitude of reverence gratefulness, thankfulness, honor, respect. It's hard to explain the fear of God, but I I think the poets get at it better sometimes than the theologians. And I love this one by F.W. Faber. He wrote some hymns. The hymns, we don't do many of his hymns. Um, There is one, O Come and Mourn, with me a while that we've sung sometimes. But I love this, this hymn. He says, Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with the deepest, tenderest fears and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. They love thee little, if at all, who do not fear thee much. If love is thine attraction, Lord, fear is thy very touch. Fearing God is vital because it orients everything in our lives. Great Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner put it this way, fear God is a call that puts us in our place and puts all other fears, hopes, and aspirations in their place. You can't live without fear. The question is, what do you fear? And in what direction? What do you reverence? What orients you? Okay? So that was the conclusion of the matter. But here, let me just say this. Okay, God tells us the conclusion of the matter. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Well, that doesn't really help very much. Because I don't know about you, but I haven't lived that way. And I'm not living that way now, right? In other words, sometimes I think we're like, God, just tell me your will for my life. Like, you really want to know? Because <laughs> you actually haven't lived it. I mean, I can tell you there's a, there's a verse in one of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians that says, you know, f- flee sexual immorality. For this is God's will for your life. Sometimes the Bible is 
like really uncomfortably specific <laughs> about God's will. And, and I'm like, you know, when we get that one down, then I guess he can give us some more, right? And I don't know anybody in this room that could say, yep, I got that one. Give me some more. So God's will for your life. Okay, what is it? <laughs> what is, what is the, what is, how can this be good news for people who have not, who have not lived the purpose for which we were made? who have thwarted and frustrated the purpose for which we were made. In other words, how is this good news for sinners who have not fulfilled their purpose in life? In other words, you and me. And in verse 11, there's this intriguing little, little thing. I, even when I read it, I felt people were like, what? You know, look at this, verse 11, chapter 12. The words of the wise are like goads, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. A goad is a firmly embedded nail. This is the way Hebrew poetry works. It repeats things when uses different words to say the same thing. A goad is basically nails that are at the end of this stick that you use to prod your oxen in the butt to make it move. That's what a goad is. This is a, you know, I, I love this. There's one other place in the Bible where the, the word goad is used. And you don't see it unless you read the King James. But when Paul is on his way to persecute Christians and he's struck down, he hears a voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? I always love that image because if you're wearing sandals, kicking against the goads is, you know, a really kind of gruesome image. But that's what he's doing, right? I've called you to live this way and you're kicking against the goads. Don't do that. Quit doing that. So, the words of the wise are like goads. They kind of jab us out of complacency. They kind of wake us up, even to the ache that's in our hearts that we don't want to get in touch with sometimes. And given by one shepherd. See, God is the one who gives wisdom to those who deserve death. Like, why does God even bother to tell us what we were made for? And you see it in his character. He's the shepherd. And then you think about John chapter 10. Because Jesus takes on this image, doesn't he? Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who not only calls to us, who not only gives us the counsel, the wisdom we need, but he says the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for his sheep. For those who go in search of many schemes rather than fearing God and keeping his commands, the good shepherd doesn't just speak truth. He actually lives and dies for those who have ignored and scorned the words of life. So in conclusion, a couple things on why we desperately need the book of Ecclesiastes, why we're going to spend the rest of the semester looking at it. Ecclesiastes rebukes modern Christianity's attempt to live a sanitized, safe world and try to create a sanitized, safe little world. It also encourages us to be more honest about the frustration of life. And I, I'm just telling you, that actually has a lot more evangelistic impact than you might think. If you would just be honest about the frustration, you'd find that Ecclesiastes is a book that beckons us, that invites us to be honest. It also connects us to real longings. 
The kind the advertisers don't want stirred up because they can't sell us anything that will satisfy. So they keep us sort of caught up in these pseudo longings that they can promise to meet. But Ecclesiastes pulls the, the mask off, as it were, and shows us that the ache is deeper than anything that we can buy. I think Christians need to be sobered by Ecclesiastes. It's part of learning wisdom. It's helpful for you even to think about what are the schemes that I go in pursuit of, because you probably run to the same schemes over and over and over again. And they kind of work. That's what makes them so addictive. Dan Allender, I remember him, the guy I was talking about earlier, saying one time that, you know, the, the most powerful idols are the ones that every once in a while seem to give you what you want. Just, it's just like gambling, right? They work it out, the odds, in such a way that you win every once in a while, and that's what makes it such a powerful addiction. If nobody ever won, you'd be able to let go of it, right? If there weren't times that your people-pleasing actually worked for you and gave you what you wanted, you wouldn't turn to it so much, right? If porn didn't give you a thrill of some sort and sort of help distract you from the ache that's in your heart, you wouldn't turn to it so much. Every once in a while, it kind of seems to work. And Ecclesiastes is helpful to rip off the, the mask and say it's not actually working. We need Ecclesiastes as well to, to be reminded that God gives good gifts even in the midst of the frustration. And it's a book that commends the goodness of the good gifts that God gives us. And then finally, it provides, invites us to a profound connection to Jesus and his suffering because Jesus is the one who groaned more than we ever will and understand that the more you become like Jesus, the man of sorrows, the more you will enter into the groaning that's going on in Romans chapter 8, which again is all about Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes wasn't just for people who knew life before Jesus. Romans 8 says that that's what life is still like, even for those who know Jesus, even for those who are assured that nothing will separate them from the love of God, which is what Romans is about. Still, the groaning is real and it's everywhere. Let's pray.